Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey team, Oliver here. This week I interview Jonas Naivang, CEO and founder of Stillride, who are building a very novel electric motorbike out of Sweden. I'm always very interested in how micromobility will create and enable new production techniques for lightweight electric vehicles. And as you can hear, I think that Stillride has something very interesting to offer to the conversation. As Horace has often laid out, the manufacturing technique determines so much about a product and the new vehicle manufacturing techniques like iStream from Gordon Murray or in this case, modularized micro factories from Stillride, so goes new types of vehicles that can be created. In particular, I'm excited how folded sheet metal frames might be able to better package the tech that I think we'll see coming on micromobility vehicles. I loved this conversation and I hope you do too. And here is Jonas. Let's go. All right, and welcome back to Micromobility. We have with us today Jonas Naivang from Stillride. How are you doing today, Jonas? I'm doing fine. It's great to be here, Oliver. Hey, it's great to have you. This is the uh, the second attempt at this interview, eh? <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, we, we uh, unfortunately lost the first one and uh, with some technical issues, but I'm very, very excited to be able to circle back on this one. I've been very, very excited about the company and what you're building up in Sweden. So I thought maybe the best place to start is if you want to just take us through what Stillride uh, is doing and why, and why it's interesting, and we can go from there. Sure. Uh, Stillride is a design and technology company based in Stockholm, Sweden. Uh, we were founded after a research project where we invented uh, a new manufacturing technology, which is uh, a form of industrial origami. We, we fold metals, especially steel, mm-hmm. uh, into a frame f- for our bike. That was our first product. We're now recently working with Polestar, uh, their body in white, to make that more zero emissions. And uh, we're, we're taking steel as far as we can go into something more sustainable. Yeah, awesome. So the, like the part that got me was industrial origami to be able to, to do new ways of building frames, because I think, you know, Horace, uh, my co-host for the podcast, has oftentimes talked about how new production techniques unlock and enable new forms of vehicles. And that, you know, one of the things that I've really noted about e-bikes or e-mopeds or e-scooters that we've had to date has been that they've really been, we're building them the same way that we've built them for a really long time. Like if you look at, you know, how we build standard electric uh, scooters or e-bikes, like they're still the same bikes that we've had. They're tubes welded together doing the same thing. And, you know, the backstory to this podcast was Horace and I were talking a lot about, you know, why has the auto industry not changed for a really long time? And his has been, you know, that that we've made cars the same way for a really, you know, since the Ford Model T, which is stamped steel, putting it into, uh, you know, putting it in, painting it, and then and then pumping it out, which is why the economics of it are very inflexible because the cost of production is very high. So when I saw you, what you've done, which is, you know, obviously you're working on micromobility, but I think it has wider applications, as you are indicating with uh, Polestar, uh, I thought 
we definitely have to have this conversation. So talk me through the particular vehicle, like the history of the particular vehicle that you're proposing and, and where you're at with the company in terms of making that. Yeah, cool. I mean, the the, the history behind this vehicle is quite long, actually. Uh, it's, uh, it's a dream from, from my co-founder and to Bayer, who's uh, the designer behind it, is he started to to kind of draw and sketch this design when he was nineteen, and t- today he's forty seven. So yeah, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so he's when when we met, uh, we're we're old time friends. But when we met at a dinner uh, f- three and a half year ago, we he actually sketched this bike. It's like a, a Vespa style electric motorbike uh, and but he did it in a really new way he did it from one one flat sheet of metal mm-hmm. and he folded it in this this the, on this dinner and i was really impressed by that and i think that idea just stuck got stuck in my mind and so when we started to explore it i mean we could see that this also it reduces the number of components, the weight. Uh, it it has the same strength as, uh, or even it's stronger than the, the actually the piping, tubular frame that uh, the regular scooters have. So there's loads of benefits from actually folding it, and it, the most particular one that we could see from from actually doing it and rendering it and prototyping it was that it it creates a really strong design DNA. Mm-hmm. And that design DNA, we we saw the power of that when we released some images online, and uh, it was picked up by an electric motorcycle blog in the UK, and then it just uh, traveled, you know, to fifteen countries, uh, one hundred fifty media's covered it. Yeah. So. Well, that's how, and that's how I came across it. I think I someone, and I, and it is. It's a very striking design. I, I remember seeing it and going. Wow, like this, uh, <laughs> this is something else. And in the process, it was, you know, like, as you say, it's a striking piece of design. But when you really understand the significance of the middle folding and why that, uh, you know, so talk me through, like, because I think I understand it, but I'd, I'd love to have you explain this to me. What's the value, again, of the strength and the packaging that is enabled by uh, the still fold kind of way of manufacturing a, a moped. I think, I mean, it's taking something like a, a flat sheet and trying to to ha- create the structure with both curved lines and straight lines as a basis to and minimizing it and reducing the number of folds and the number of welds as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that doing that... Uh, we had to create a, a software to be able to actually fit it together because the actually folding, uh, the folding grammar or uh, the folding patterns are not supported by CAD softwares today. So just figuring that out, we'd had to do a lot of paper folding <laughs> yep. to make it, you know, realizing it as well as to prototype it, but also the, the, the genius of it is that when you actually fold along curved lines, if it's paper or if it's metal, uh, you know, you, and fit it together, it creates a very, very strong construction. It's the kind of the, the atoms in the curve 
lock each other mm-hmm. into very, very strong shape. And what sort of strength are we talking? Like, can you give me an, an, an indication of how this might perform compared to other? Yeah, we compared it in FEM analysis and together with KTH University in Stockholm and to the NIO chassis, that, the, the, the Chinese bike. Nio, oh, Nio? Nio, uh, yep. that we took apart as well. And the, our chassis was 50 times stronger than the tube tubular frame, wow. which constructs uh, consists of tubes. So it's like that just gives some reference to the strength of it. Yeah, and it's and is it how does it compare in terms of weight when you have all the packaging relative to the rest of the body and everything else? You know, like if you were to compare them directly, are they are they comparable in weight? Like how thick is that steel? Uh, it's it's uh it's it's not very thick it's quite thin uh we try to make it as thin as possible but just comparing the neo chassis that we took apart which is the same kind of vehicle uh, it, that weighed about uh, 70 kilos and if you compare that chassis to our chassis that weighs approximately 10 kilos oh no way wow so, i had realized it was uh that big a difference yeah, I mean, so so again, one of these things that, you know, between me coming across what you're working on and, and then uh, having conversations with others, I think, you know, the thing that I got excited about, we, I want to come to car manufacturing in a second, but I, the reason I'm excited was, was around micromobility and the opportunities that exist in micromobility uh, for this. Because I think, you know, especially as we shift towards more e-bikes, what we have been looking for, we, like e-bikes provide an, a unique uh, opportunity in this space and and they present a unique challenge which is that uh, they are oftentimes packaging a lot inside of the frames you know they've got batteries that they want to have internal they've yeah. got uh, electronics they've got wiring they've got uh, sensors etc cetera, etc cetera. and oftentimes these can be you know they're, they're packaged into tubes because that's oftentimes what we've had uh, to date but folks have been looking for alternatives right of like how do you package up different options and this looks like it could be applied to e-bikes. Would that? Do you think that there's a way there uh, that you could be able to do the sort of forms that you would see on an e-bike with this technology? I think so. Um, we, we haven't tried that application specifically. We're working on trailers and forest uh, machines and, and cars at the moment. And But uh, definitely, I think it's about, all about simplifying the frame as much as possible. So... I think definitely curved origami could work for e-bikes as well and e-bike frames. Mm. So take me through the the part that you're talking about with the uh, poster or as much as you can uh, and how that might apply to existing kind of car manufacturing or more things. Yeah, from from uh, our collaboration, we're taking a look at the, the body in white, so the frame and the chassis. And uh, we're took, taking a look at how we can reduce emissions as much as possible in the construction of it. So it's more of a uh, zero emission project than, than a strength and re- reduction project. It's actually eliminating the zero emissions, the emissions as much as possible. So it's a bit of a different context, uh, which is really interesting because they have super strong uh, objectives to eliminate all chemical processes that uh, creates uh, emissions 
So how is that a zero emissions? Is it because it, it's not stamped or how does that work if I'm... It, well, we, need, we, we can't weld anything, you know, in, if we do, if they do this work with them. We can only work with super green steel, which have no zero emissions in it. And so it sets, that's a whole lo- new level of limitations. Yeah, wow. That's, <laughs> I hadn't realized that. That's, uh, that's fascinating though. Like from a competing competition perspective, that's taking a very, very, very kind of like to have zero emissions in the actual vehicle production or in the steel of the vehicle production is um, like an order of magnitude harder than everything else. Yeah. And also yeah. I don't see anybody else doing it. So it's going to be challenging for them. I mean, I assume they'd also be doing it because there's a cost benefit to them as well, right? From a, from a production perspective. Uh, yeah, I think I mean they 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 can't uh, increase the cost uh, as an as an effect of just being zero emissions. I mean they have to decrease the cost uh, as an effect of that as well. Yes. Yeah. So, so because it's going to be more expensive to source material that are zero emissions uh, because that that material is going to be really rare. Yep. Yep. Totally. Well, hey, I also wanted to give the other context of another vehicle that's in the space that I think is very interesting that uses similar technology to what you're talking about, which is uh, the Cybertruck. And I know Horace will be rolling his eyes at the at the prospect of this. But, um, you know, one of the things that I thought is very cool about the Cybertruck, other than it looks very weird, has been uh, so Sandy Monroe, who, who's, uh, I think, a legend in the space of auto manufacturing, has talked about how folded metal provides the strength that you're talking about in terms of you know it's a very different look vehicle but it Mm. but it provides the exoskeleton uh and the strength within the body that if you plug it onto a chassis you can end up with something that's incredibly robust and rigid but very uh like a lot more a lot way easier to produce and then you go back from that and go like well what is required to build a factory that does these things well you don't need to have like a big metal stamping process. And the big metal stamping process is the, is the most expensive part of a car factory. And it's also a, one of the con- constraints, right, in terms of in terms of production, because then you go from that to body and white, and then the body gets painted and all these sort of things. And they're going, we're not even going to paint the body. We're literally going to take a big piece of flat sheet metal, cut some, cut some kind of grooves into it, and then fold it, and then put it onto a chassis that's already assembled. And that's the vehicle. And then we'll build up the inside around it. And I, you know, what, what they're talking about, like why that's significant is that it means that you can build a factory for probably an order of magnitude cheaper than it would cost to build a, a standard car factory or others. So I, I assume there are probably benefits for you similarly, right? For for you in terms of, I don't know how much it would cost to set up a moped manufacturing facility, but I assume it's going to be relatively high obviously an order of magnitude cheaper than a like a car factory but that but that you you're you know what you what you're going to do is still right in terms of what this would look like if you went into production uh would be substantially cheaper than than a standard other one so can you talk me through like you're you've now got these vehicles you're looking at going into production next year like how do how are you thinking about what that'll look like for vehicles can you go into production and like mass production for this or and and what would that production facility look like we're thinking more like a micro uh, factory yep. production. So we're setting up a micro factory in Stockholm now as our first uh, manufacturing hub. And that's, uh, that's going to be assembly, but also cutting, welding, and 
you know, getting the folding the pieces into the bike. Yes. So to keep that in the studio, we we have in, in Stockholm is like a test bed as well, of course, that we can create the value chain that is f- from end to end. So we can also have a circular approach to the bike, so we can repair them and, and fix them as well. But uh, it's also that we we really believe in local, uh, you know, scalable production. So you can scale down and and up you know in terms of moving a container with this uh, micro factory in it to this the, the location where it need, where the demand is so if there's demand in Mil- milan we could we could ship uh, two containers there for instance and have a manufacturing unit that that's so cool but so talk me through uh, so like micro is micro like container size yeah, like the space we're taking now is it's like two containers, I would say, two assembly stations and two two robot cells. Yeah. Wow! And how uh, how big is uh, how big are we talking in terms of production? So, like one, what what's the kind of production footprint? So, how many vehicles would you get out of something that that big? I guess is my question. Uh, I mean, we we haven't tested it yet. We're building it right now, so we're taking the space uh, right now and starting to build. So it's hard to say, but I, I would say depending on how quick the the assembly is, you know, I think two to three bikes a day at least. You know. Yep. Yep. So and uh, the, and how does the economics of that stack up? Like ballpark per factory. You know, is it a relatively cheap per factory? I mean, are, they, are these are these standardized tools? It's nothing, nothing like super yeah, complex the, or different. No, no, no. The assembly stations are. I mean, that's standard assembly benches with, you know, shelves and and with parts in it. Yeah. But uh, and the cell for the robotics right now, we're working with two robotic arms and uh, and a machine that that makes the folding. Oh wow! Okay, yep. So it's so it's quite standardized. Yep. Uh, Interesting. And the robotic arms are just standard. Are they? Uh, you know, I haven't heard many because a lot of uh, moped manufacturers talk about like moving away. Well, not even moped. Sorry, I'm, I'm talking about like car manufacturers. You know, you do you you have uh, robots for particular parts of the assembly. So early, early body production and and welding and all that sort of stuff. And then they should obviously shift to like manual manual production uh people for for mm, later stages yeah. and fitting and all that sort of thing yeah exactly so so we we have two we need two manual uh, people doing the assembly and testing but uh, but we we complement that with the folding that's more optimized yep yep why wouldn't you then just do all of those in one place like do a do one big factory or well, not big but you know a factory in one place and then just ship the ship the pre assembled bodies to, to different locations for, for, for assembly? I mean, uh, we might do that. Uh, I mean, like, but I think the assembly stations have a, a benefits in itself that it's uh, assembled, you know, when the, especially if you go overseas, you know, there's huge logistic cost now. And so it's, it's kind of a, a calculation you have to make for each setup, I guess, you know, so, is, is there a return on investment to not ship bikes from Stockholm 
uh, to New Zealand. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, is it more worth to? Yeah. Especially if you can get sheet metal here that you could do that assembly with, you know? Yeah. But our vision is to, to have local assembly units, especially for, you know, bigger markets. Uh, so where we have, if we would have demand in California, let's say we would have a, a local production unit there, maybe rent it uh, with the metal workshop that we work with, or, you know, so we, we could have a partnership with the local player. Yeah. Yep, that makes a lot of sense to me. Hey, um, so I want to kind of shift gears and talk a little bit about that vehicle uh, because I think we've, yeah. we've gone straight in the technology and we haven't really talked much about the vehicle. But like, talk me through the vehicle and, and pre-orders and and how that and how that part of the the game has been going so far. And by the way, for folks who haven't seen it, I'll put up a, an image, but it is just a beautiful design. It's a really, uh, it was very striking. I mean, I was I was very excited about it. Thank you. Uh, yeah, the, yeah, it's been uh, it's it's uh, it's a lot of development to develop electric motorbike, uh, and right now we're working on on the system very much, and and uh, you know getting the functionality up to to the standard we want, but also f- finishing and and uh, doing the polishing of the you know the the prototype three as we call it. Yep. So uh, we we're gonna go out and ride it uh, on Friday. Marvelous. Yep. Is it is the goal? Exciting. Yeah. So that's uh, super exciting, and the goal for for launch is to to launch the prototype three, you know, images and specs and all that, uh, which will be the week we go to market with first before Christmas. So that's also very near. Uh, and we have had like a huge interest during the. We had about hundred thirty thousand people signed up, interested in buying the bike so far. Wow, that's incredible. So yeah, it's it's a lot of people. Yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a that's. I mean, you know, not paid pre-orders, obviously, but a hundred even one hundred thirty thousand is a very good signal. You know, like it's a very good. Um, yeah, uh, you know. Um, it feels like there's a product to market fit. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, hope. exactly right. That you, that you, like, okay, well, at least some of these folks will convert and, and we'll be able to sell these vehicles. And uh, yeah, that's really cool. And 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 uh, for the, what are the performance specs? Like, you, are you are you regulating this as just a standard moped or is it going to be a motorbike or how is that going to be uh, classified? Yeah, but the first week we're doing is, uh, is going to be a motorbike, uh, partly because we think that, People who commute will, especially around the European cities, they they need to have a vehicle that goes uh, over hundred yeah. plus kilometers an hour, uh, because then it's a it's motorways into town, and and you won't want to be able to you know drive there without slowing down the traffic, and uh, there is also a kind of we we see a gap in the market there if compared to the moped market, whereas it's so much competition yes. at the moment. Uh, uh, there is not as many competitors in this space, uh, where uh, there is uh, also a huge market in southern Europe. Yes, yeah, and warmer climates, especially where you don't need to have a motorcycle license; you can drive on a car slide, a car license. Totally. Do you have um, uh, like examples of other motorbike companies that have been built in Sweden? Like, are there other motorbike companies there? 
Yeah, there is a couple of uh, actually some some startups. Yep. Uh, Cake uh, is quite well known. Uh, oh yeah, of course. Hey, I'm going to have them on the podcast. By the way, They're, have you met them? I assume you've met them. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah I know. Yeah. I know the founder a little bit. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I assume Sweden's like New Zealand, and everyone just knows each other. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Stockholm <laughs> is a small pond. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Yeah, well, look the um, and that first vehicle, by the way. So you're you're thinking of uh, something that's got you know decent performance on it. What's the price point that you're looking to hit? And for the vehicle, like, what are the you know the the performance specs in terms of uh, like range and things like that? Are you what are you doing for batteries? Yeah, the batteries uh, we're we're ramping up the batteries quite a lot. So it's uh, eleven kilowatts uh, top. Uh, and it's uh, 120 kilometers range. Oh, awesome. And are those batteries swappable or are they just, uh, you have to charge the bike in the garage? You have to charge the bike. We're, we're starting off there at least. We're, we're looking at swappable batteries further on. Yeah. Uh, but the first version is going to be you charge it on a, in a station. Yes, that makes sense. Or in your house yep. because there's so many, many batteries. And... Uh, we're working with like a French manufacturer batteries right at the moment. So it's going to be very, you can swap the cells actually if they're, if they go bust or yep. are bad. So, so you can actually signal that as well. And uh, yeah, other specs. Uh, yeah. We're, are you using a hub motor or? Uh, yeah. A hub motor. Uh, yeah. Also European yep. hub motor. Yep. That's amazing to get a, a that level of performance out of a hub motor. Normally, people shift to some sort of geared system. Yeah, it has a very high torque actually. So that's uh, that's one of the reasons why we picked this this hub motor. Yep, yep, fantastic. And so, as you've mentioned, you've got one hundred and thirty thousand people on the on the list. What's your expectation around pre orders? Like, you know, for early production, I assume. You're you're going to ramp it at some pace, but uh, but uh, just kind of curious if if you've got any sort of indications of how many vehicles you think you'll try and build in the first couple of years. Yeah, I mean uh, we're ramping up uh, quite quite slowly. We we think that it's going to be important to like treat all the chilling sicknesses in the beginning. So so yes. like we're producing two hundred the first year is the goal, uh, yep. and then we're ramping up from there. Uh, trying to double, you know, at least and go up to thousand units in two to three years. Yep. Yep. Uh, awesome. And uh, with the price point, what are you, what are you looking at at the stage for the, for what you think the price point will be? We're looking, we're looking at now a price point of about 10 K euro. Yes. Uh, like, yeah. So it's going to be, uh, it's going to be a premium price point, but uh, not, no, it's going to be less than the BMW uh, Motorrad, and uh, but a little bit higher than the Vespa Electric. Catch you, yeah, yeah, yeah. That premium space ride is is um, certainly big, but I I think interesting just because hopefully we'll see that the the vehicle itself will will shift and become uh, more mainstream and accessible over time. Well, I assume uh, that is the actual cost of production. 
once you get to scale, like if you could do this at decent amount of scale, do, how do you think the, the the still fold production process would compare to, for example, a chassis with, you know, thermoplastic parts that, that other mopeds might might be trying to be built with? Do you think it could be cost competitive over time? Yes, definitely. I, th- I think as when we get the robotic production going, I mean, then it's going to be much more cost effective than the first kind of versions we've done. You know, which has been more, uh, more testing out the technology. Yes. Yeah. Because then we can ramp it up quickly. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the objective is, of course, that it's uh, as or more cost effective than the the plastic uh, productions that are very much the stand right now. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Fantastic. And, and look, the, the the final thing I really want to cover off is is just around fundraising. And, you know, the, the one thing that I note is that having been in, I'd be, I'm in this space and I spend a lot of time talking to folks here and it is just really challenging to uh, get folks who are, you know, uh, to, to, to fund companies in the space. Like a pre-revenue hardware is hard. Yeah. And right now is very hard to fund. And, you know, you're obviously very interesting because you're a mix of like pre-revenue hardware, but you've also got new manufacturing technology, which has wider applications. And so, but can you take me through the history of funding, like how you've managed to get this company uh, to the state that you've got it in? And then, you know, like who the funders are and who you think they will continue to be over time? Sure. Um, we we started out quite early with, uh, we were supported by private investors. So, so, and actually people we know. I mean, people who are, uh, you know, in Stockholm, uh, people we have known for a long time that believe in us as a team. And I think that was a really good start because we didn't have to give away too much of the company and and we could develop it with the trust of those guys. And then we we widened that uh, network of people to include, like, people we didn't know uh, but had big trust in the technology and and the, mm-hmm. and the team and the, and the product especially and i think what really helped us to to drive the kind of the the second seed round you know pre pre sales you know was that we had this interest you know from media and potential consumers so we could show the investors that there is attraction in the market and uh, and the third round, which we just raised now, and that we're, we're almost finished with, is uh, that then the technology has been the, the kind of the driving factor. So having patented it, having a lot of industrial interest from big players, ABB, Polestar, and and, mm-hmm. and those type of actors, that, that has kind of driven the, the fundraising to this... Being quite, I I was really nervous for this round actually because, as you say, you know the times are bad right now. You know, yeah. yeah so yeah. it's not given that you can you can raise money. Uh, so, but it went really easily. We had eight eight percent of of the existing shareholders. Uh, they invested again. Yeah, fantastic. And uh, we had support from some new ones. And I think it's partly because we've been very good at updating our existing shareholders of what's happening and and 
making them, you know, uh, even more engaged. And I think that's a strong way of actually building your investor base that you have engaged people that uh, that are not just in it for the money. They're actually no, no, yeah, bought in on the mission, in it for the journey. You know, yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, I I think that there's a job to be done for for tourist investors. I think that this is one area of micromobility that people haven't quite grokked yet is that there's a lot of folks who are interested in this space and have lots of money and they just want to be taken along on the journey of developing a new vehicle, especially if they think it's cool. And um, that the, the that everyone kind of assumes it's like it's all done on investment returns, but actually being able to talk about the cool vehicles that you're <laughs> invested in is, is a material motivation for a lot of folks who just have lots of money and not much to do. Uh, I don't quite know who captures that well, but uh, I, clearly you guys have um, been been good at that uh, that in the early stages. Yeah, and I think I mean it's fascinating how much you need to invest actually from uh, both energy and you know budget into developing a new vehicle. I mean it's not it's not easy. Mm, mm. It's blood, sweat, and tears. You know. And money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, look, I, as I've, as I've sort of mentioned, I've just been, I, I've been so excited about what you guys have been doing and, and telling everyone and referring you on to folks. And y- you are doing something that is very unique. I haven't found anybody else who's doing anything quite like this. Uh, and I, and I, and I, I just want to take, say, I take my hat off to you for, for, for the effort that you've put in so far. Uh, and and here's hoping. I mean, I I love the vehicle. I'd love to work out how I can get one at some point in New Zealand. And yeah, it, it would be great. Do you have do you have space in your backyard? We might place a container there. Yeah, yeah. I have a feeling my partner might might uh, kick up a fuss about that. But we do have space across the road, so who knows? That might be my new my new <laughs> uh, my new business venture is uh, manufacturing manufacturing something like this. Um, but look, I yeah, just want to say thank you very much uh, for for taking the time to to chat with us today. If folks want to find out more, like I'll put up links to the uh, to the company and all that sort of stuff. But just you know, if folks want to find out more. Uh, where would they find out uh, details about it? At steedray.com. Fantastic. And if they were trying to track you down, Jonas, how do they get in touch with you? You can email me at uh, Jonas, J-O-N-A-S, at steedray.com. Fantastic. Awesome. Hey, well, uh, thank you uh, again for, for this. Thank you, Oliver. Yeah, yeah. And looking forward to hopefully we're, uh, I'm, my, my dream, my dream is that we get to have you at uh, Micromobility Europe in Amsterdam next year because uh, we couldn't make it happen this year. So, Yeah, I think that, that would be a perfect timing for us, actually. Yeah, awesome. All right. Well, um, you heard it here first, folks. And uh, yeah, come meet Jonas, hopefully, <laughs> uh, next year. All right. Hey, well, thank you. And we'll talk soon. Talk soon. Bye.